I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, November 5th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, COVID vaccines for kids between the ages of 5 and 11 are now available in the state. Then, contention over a proposed mosque in DeSoto County. Plus, a novel approach to conserving oyster populations along the Gulf Coast. And a beloved African wildcat named Aria is on the lam in Richland. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A modified version of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccination has now received authorization from the FDA for use in kids between the ages of 5 and 11. It's a significant step in the battle against the pandemic, especially in Mississippi, where the Delta variant of the coronavirus has hit hard. Multiple Mississippi children have died of the disease within the past few months alone. At the height of the virus spike late this summer, some elementary and middle schools in the state were forced to close their doors for weeks. Dr. Anita Henderson is president of the Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. We're very excited now about having that opportunity to vaccinate kids age 5 through 11 against coronavirus. It is going to help protect our children, protect their ability to stay in school, and help prevent them from getting COVID-19. How long will parents have to wait until they can have their children get vaccinated for the virus? We have had meetings with the Mississippi State Department of Health over the last several weeks in preparation, and we actually have pediatric clinics throughout the state of Mississippi that have already received the Pfizer COVID vaccine for ages 5 through 11. So we anticipate vaccinating children this week and then really ramping up our vaccination efforts next week. We have pediatricians, we have family practice doctors who are ready, willing, and able to help protect their children. We also have um, vaccines that will be available in some pharmacies, 
they will be available at some federally qualified health centers, the health departments. So trying to find a vaccine for your child, first thing I would do is call your pediatrician or your family practice doctor and ask them if they have it available. And if not, there will be information on vaccines.gov as far as which locations have the Pfizer vaccine for ages five through 11. It is a different formulation. It is a different dosage. It is a different vial. So we are not simply using one third of the adult or adolescent dose. We are using a different vial, different formulation with different storage uh, requirements. So make sure to check with your pediatrician first or your family practice doctor first and get on their list for the COVID vaccine. For parents that have children in this age group, but they might be on the on the fence about if they want to get their children vaccinated, what would you tell them? Uh, what conversations are you and other pediatricians across the state having with parents about th- these vaccines? We have all been dealing with coronavirus now for the last 18 months. It has caused disease in children. It's caused disease in adults. It has caused disruptions within the school system. And we have had kids with long-term complications from COVID. We've had nine children in the state of Mississippi who have died from COVID, six during the Delta wave. So we know that coronavirus can be serious and deadly within children. So the question is, do you want, do you want your child to have disease-acquired immunity, or would you prefer your child to have vaccine-acquired immunity, which is safer? We have not had any problems with the vaccine. My clinic, Hattiesburg Clinic, has given and vaccinated almost 1,000 children age 12 and up with the Pfizer COVID vaccine, and we have not had any complications, no significant side effects, simply um, what you would expect, sore arms, some aches and pains. So we really have a good safety profile for this vaccine. And the Pfizer vaccine for 5 through 11 was found to be 91% effective. It was tested during the Delta wave, so we know that it is effective against the Delta variant of COVID-19. So that is the question. Is disease-acquired immunity preferable to vaccine-acquired immunity? And our data shows that children can have significant complications from COVID-19, and vaccine-acquired immunity is a much safer option. What do you think this could mean for schools? Children 12 and up have been able to get vaccinated for a few months now, but now this will cover the entirety of, you know, normal school ages, kindergarten through 12th grade. Do you think this could change the way schools can approach learning? We are very hopeful that it will add a layer of protection for our kids in school. We have children who have avoided school for the last year because they may be immunocompromised. They may be cancer survivors. They may have chronic conditions, or they may have someone in the family with chronic conditions. So by vaccinating those children five and up, we're going to protect the child, we're going to protect the family, and we are going to help facilitate in-person learning. The more children age five and up that we can vaccinate, the less likely we will have spread of COVID-19 throughout the classroom. There is a time gap between vaccines whenever you get your first dose and your second dose. Is there enough time for parents to have their children vaccinated and be ready for, say, Thanksgiving? We are able to vaccinate this week or next week. 
then you would wait three weeks to get your second dose. Then two weeks after that second dose, you're considered fully immune. So there is a good opportunity to be fully vaccinated and fully immune by Christmas vacation. Dr. Anita Henderson is president of the Mississippi chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Coming up, the ACLU files a suit over alleged religious discrimination in DeSoto County. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The American Civil Liberties Union has filed a lawsuit against the DeSoto County city of Horn Lake. The suit comes after Horn Lake's Board of Aldermen denied a building permit to two Muslim business partners who sought to build a mosque in the city. State ACLU legal director Joshua Tom tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he believes the two men were discriminated against on the basis of their faith. Our clients purchased a piece of property in Horn Lake that was zoned as of right for a house of worship. And then the site plan that they had drew up, which um, had the uh, plans for the mosque, met or exceeded all the zoning requirements um, and planning requirements for Horn Lake. Um, Notwithstanding both of those things, both the Planning Commission and the Board of Aldermen of Horn Lake denied uh, them a permit based on anti-Muslim animus, which um, they put in the record, you know, Board of Aldermen made anti-Muslim statements at the hearing. And there was also a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment uh, by residents in the community at these planning commission and Board of Aldermen meetings. Can you give us some indication of what kinds of things were said? You know, for example, one Board of Aldermen said something uh, to the effect of, you know, paraphrased, if you let them build it, they will come. So we should stop it right now. How do you feel about taking up a case like this? You know, I think that this is a righteous case in America. You know, one of the you know foundational principles of our country is uh, religious freedom, the ability to practice any religion or no religion. And so when you see a city like Horn Lake, um, you know, engage in uh, blatant um, anti-Muslim Uh, sentiment and anti-Muslim practices. Um, It's just, you know, not what our country um, is built on. And and we want to make sure that our clients are able to practice their religion freely and build a mosque in Horn Lake as they have every right to do. Joshua Tom is legal director of the ACLU of Mississippi. Horn Lake City Attorney Billy Campbell has not responded to MPB's request for comment. Coming up, a novel approach to protecting oyster habitats. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi conservationists say they're concerned about dwindling oyster populations in the Gulf of Mexico. But one group thinks it's found a novel way to combat the problem with the help of an unlikely partner. Tom Mormon is the lead marine specialist for the Nature Conservancy of Mississippi. He tells us about his plan to collaborate with seafood restaurants in the state on an oyster shell recycling program. Oysters are a marine invertebrate. They live in the, the saltwater in Mississippi Sound. 
and they repro reproduce by sending uh, larvae into the water. Those larvae float around for a couple weeks, and eventually, when they find uh, the water conditions to be just right, they'll trigger and sink to the to the bottom. And where they land is, is where they live forever. So uh, that's why something like substrate, which, where they land, is so important. So one of the things with Mississippi is that we are substrate limited. There are not as many places for oysters to settle as they as there once was. Now, the substrate, that is the shell or it's an area and the shell develops around the oyster. So the, the place oysters like to, to live the most is on other oyster shells. So they'll typically naturally land on, on oyster shells. Uh, we use uh, limestone and other states use crushed concrete as substrate for, for restoration purposes. But currently in Mississippi, we just use limestone and other oyster shells. But it is one of the best places to, for an oyster to land and, and grow on. Tell us about the recycling program. So the oyster shell recycling programs uh, being conducted in two phases. The first is a feasibility study, which is the phase we're in right now. And the second is going to be uh, a pilot collection program, depending on the results of the first phase. So the, the main goal of the oyster shell recycling program is to collect oyster shells that otherwise would be headed to the landfill and bring them back to uh, Mississippi coastal waters. Has this program or something like it been done in other states? The other five Gulf states have uh, programs operating within them. Typically, they're run by non-government organizations or nonprofits uh, with some level of cooperation from uh, state resource agencies. There are also several on the Atlantic coast, and I believe uh, California has a, a few as well. You're asking restaurants to save their oyster shells. Do they need to be cleaned ahead of time? What condition do they need to be in to be helpful or useful to you? So restaurants are the key partner in making this happen uh, in the long run. So we'll need to work closely with them. We've currently been conducting surveys on coast restaurants and getting information and feedback on a potential program with them. And, you know, they would be partners essentially in this project. We would work to collect that shell resource from them and it would need to be clean and free of, of trash, such as plastic and paper. Uh, but typically, you take it to a, a site to cure uh, out in the open air for six months uh, at a minimum. And that eliminates all the possible contaminants that the shells might have from a, a biological standpoint. You can't put uh, trash in the water. So we have to be very careful on how those shells are collected. And that's why it's so important to work closely with oyster restaurants. Uh, because their, their staff need to be uh, ready to go and, and support the removal of the material that's not oyster shell from the uh, collections that we'll be making. After you've cured the shells, how do you create the environment? So there are, there are a couple ways you can use the oyster shells. One way would be to placing it directly back into the water through a process called culch planting. This is where you put uh, oyster shell or limestone back into the water in locations where you think oysters are, are going to, to settle on top of them. So the baby oysters that are floating in the water, 
you want to be strategic where you put the oyster shells back so that they're in a position to possibly land on those. But there are other uses for the oyster shells. They can be incorporated into aquaculture, and they can also be used in programs such as an oyster gardening program, for example. What is an oyster farm versus an oyster garden? Uh, an oyster garden is a, a program where uh, local residents can grow oysters in floating baskets at their home, coordinating with, in our case, Mississippi, Alabama Sea Grant and the Department of Marine Resources. They take those uh, oysters that settle on the shells to restoration projects throughout the state. Uh, an oyster farm is an aquaculture operation where uh, watermen or you know professional Farmers will have a series of cages or other other devices that, that have off-bottom oysters. So they're not sitting on the bottom of the water like wild harvest would be. These are going to be floating up in the, the surface of the water. And a lot of these are, are headed to restaurants in along the coast already. Are you asking restaurants now, are you ready for them to start handing over their oyster shells? At this point, we're going to be presenting our preliminary results to the Mississippi Department of Environmental Quality, and then they will uh, let us know when we're ready to start collecting for phase two. So it's we're, we're kind of at uh, three quarters of the way through the first phase, uh, and hopefully at the beginning of the new year, either February or March, we'll be reaching back out to the restaurant set we've already talked with and, and other folks and trying to get them uh, enrolled to, to test out our, our pilot program. It's all fascinating. And I know there's another six months after that while the shells are curing, but I want to talk to you around, I don't know, eight months or a year from now to see how it's all going. Tom Mormon is the Marine Program Manager for the Nature Conservancy of Mississippi. Thanks so much, Tom. All right. Thank you. Coming up, an unusual pet has escaped from a home in Richland. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing the leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Hunters and hikers know rural Mississippi is home to any number of unusual critters. But even the most hardened outdoorsmen may not be prepared to catch sight of an escaped pet, Serval, roaming the woods of Rankin County. Shanna Smith is the animal's owner. Serval is an African serval, and um, they're an exotic cat. They're native to the African savanna. Um, but they're born and bred here in the States. Some states, you're not allowed to have some, but in Mississippi, you are. I guess they get about 20 inches in height, about 24 inches um, in length, and they can weigh between probably 18 to 30 pounds, depending on male, female age, just, you know, overall body type and that sort of thing. And they look sort of like a miniature cheetah. How did you get one, or did you seek one out? Yeah, we did. We bought one from a breeder in Texas. Do you have others, or have you had others? Um, we don't have other servals. We have Bengals. We have a breeding program for Bengals, and we were thinking about adding savannas to that. 
So to get a Savannah, you have to have a serval. So um, we went ahead and got her, and we hadn't really decided whether or not we were going to, you know, try to have Savannah. She was mostly just a pet at this point. She had just turned a year old, like the day before she went missing. What is her name? Aria, A-R-Y-A. How did she escape? First of all, was she a house cat or is she a house cat? She was, yes. She's always been a house cat, but apparently she opened the mudroom door that kind of leads out towards the back of the house and just went out, just walked out. My husband came home. It was about 30 minutes after I had fed her. Because I'd fed her some some raw chicken. She likes chicken legs. And so I kind of lost sight of her. But I just figured she likes to take her food and kind of get off in like a secluded place, like a den where she dens at and eat. So, and then my husband came home 30 minutes later and he's like, the back door, the the door's wide open. Let's do a head count of all the cats because some of our bingles stay inside. And they were here, but she was not. So, Can she fend for herself in nature? They have the instinct. I mean, they're supposed to be really good hunters, you know, in the wild. They, um, from in the savannah, they live in the tall grasses, and their ears are really large and really sensitive, and that's how they hunt. They hear the vibrations from, like, rodents and stuff in the grass, and so they're notoriously skilled hunters. Now, we think we saw – well, my husband saw her. I saw her from a distance, but not close enough to really – pick up on the details that my husband saw her up close in the woods behind our home. There's like a Creek that separates our home and the woods that's behind our home. We pulled up one day and he saw her and he stopped the car and he got out and he was walking towards her because she was uh, looking at something. I think it was one of our guinea fowl that we had in the yard. So he got close enough to know for sure that it was her. And then I got out and I was kind of walking in that direction. Well, I guess she sensed movement out of the corner of her eye. And so she took back off into the woods. Now with hunting season knocking at the door, you want to get the uh-huh. bird out. So my question is, are you concerned that a hunter might shoot her? Or are you asking hunters to look for her since they'll be out in the wild a lot more? Well, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to make sure they know that she is out and from a distance she, or if you don't even really know what you're looking for, even not from so much of a distance, she might resemble a bobcat. Um, she's a lot taller and more slenderly built than a bobcat. She's got a longer neck and much larger ears. The face is different, but the, the coat is similar. Um, but yeah, she's not a bobcat. So beware if you see something that you think is a bobcat, don't shoot because it might be my little girl, you know, and she is like our little girl. She's, it's like, it was like a part of the family is just missing. If anyone is able to, you know, humanely catch her, we would offer a reward. I mean, like if you see her out in the woods and you have a humane trap and you think you can get her, any help would be great. That's Richland resident Shanna Smith. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.